You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You know, this virtual reality software has really gotten pretty sophisticated. I know, it looks like you're really traveling through that rainforest. Well, you can go anywhere, not just the rainforest. You can go to the tops of the trees and look around there. You could sail around the bottom of the ocean. (laughs) But it seems like a lot of these tours are limited to Earth or to the oceans on Earth. Can you go into the solar system? Well, some of them do, and really you can do it now because we have data about what the solar system looks like, you know, thanks to 50 years of spacecraft. So, sure, yeah, virtual reality tour of the solar system. I bet we could come up with our own tour of the solar system, but we could make it more specific, like hunt for life through the solar system. Let's say we did that. Where would you start? Well, I'd go to those places that are suspected of having uh, liquids, in particular water, right? NASA's mantra to follow the water in the solar system. I mean, there's possibly a great deal more water than you imagine. Speaking of imagination, many of these exotic outposts have tickled the imagination of writers long before we had the engineering wizardry to visit them. So let's bring someone else on our tour. I'm Robert J. Sawyer, Hugo Award-winning science fiction writer. Great. He knows the kinds of alien science fiction writers have created to populate the locales we're going to go visit. So we can just see how prescient these writers really were. I mean, how does sci-fi jibe with the science? I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science. Okay, well, let's do this in a logical fashion. We'll begin with the closest planet that's received the most attention from scientists and science fiction writers is, of course, our rusty, dusty pal, Mars. Rovers have spent years crawling the Martian surface. Another explorer, the Mars Science Laboratory, is on its way there now to join the other half dozen or so pieces of rolling hardware that have wandered the fourth rock from the sun. Mars has also been a favorite destination for imaginative minds. Rob, uh, Mars has always been a favorite locale for science fiction writers. How far back does Martian science fiction go? Well, in terms of any kind of serious treatment, it goes back to H.G. Wells and The War of the Worlds, which was a 1902 novel. So we're talking 110 years now that science fiction writers have really been, they were inspired by uh, Schiaparelli and the notion that there might be canale, canals, channels of water on the surface of Mars. And Wells was the first one to kind of pick up a piece of science and go with that to portray, in his case, a dying civilization, which was very much, of course, what uh, what uh, Percival Lowell, who uh, mistranslated canale to uh, canals, uh, thought he was seeing on the surface of Mars. Uh, the, the problem with Wells's, and I'll say also the problem with Percival Lowell's interpretation, is it looks at the ecosystem on Mars as being ill-adapted 
for the conditions on Mars. You have people, in Wells' terms, intellects vast, cool, and unsympathetic, looking across the gulf of space at our verdant planet, Earth, green, blue, water, uh, and deciding, as he says, to slowly and surely draw their plans against us. Come 1934, we're talking three decades later, a great writer, tragically his life was cut short, Stanley G. Weinbaum, wrote the quintessential Mars story, and it was called A Martian Odyssey, and it's literally just that, a marooned astronaut trekking across the surface of Mars, but he built a whole ecology that was suitably, ideally adapted for the dry, desert-like conditions on Mars. Instead of them railing against it, uh, they they were absolutely adapted, which is, of course, the lesson that Darwin taught us, that life adapts to the environment. It doesn't struggle against that. So you have Weinbaum, you have H.G. Wells, but you had others. I mean, you had uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, you had uh, the Martian Chronicles. Uh, Mars was definitely our favorite inhabited planet. Any particular reason for that? Well, yeah, there are a couple of reasons. Of course, it's the second closest planet to Earth. Venus is the closer, or can get closer than Mars does. Uh, And Mars, through the telescope, seemed to have geography, and it seemed to have seasonal changes in its surface markings. Now, we hoped originally of course, that these were the ebbing and flowing of forests or foliage coming and going with the spring and and dying off in the winter. Didn't turn out to be the case, but it certainly sparked the imagination. The fact that it was nearby, Venus, as you know, uh, is completely shrouded in cloud, even to the present day. Nobody on Earth has ever optically from Earth seen the surface of Venus. So it was a mystery, but Mars seemed to have geography. It seemed to have mountains and valleys, and as we learned later, huge huge volcanoes and huge, uh, uh, the, the Mariner's Valley, huge rift valleys and so forth that were incredibly provocative to writers of fiction. Okay, so Mars has the geography and the proximity to tickle the imagination of writers, but let's see what science has to say. Now, we started this by following the water. Mars doesn't seem to have liquid water on its surface, so why land here? Well, it's true. The landscapes of Mars are cold, they're dry, they're covered with sand, pretty unfriendly for life. So it would seem. But they may have had surface liquid water once upon a time. Once upon a time means? Billions of years ago. At least that's what we think. But water's not all you need. If you're a fan of breathing, you'll also need an atmosphere. I'm a big fan of breathing. But Mars doesn't have a very thick atmosphere, so it wouldn't be the destination to go if you do like to breathe. But the clue as to why Mars doesn't have much of an atmosphere comes from some pretty attractive research on the magnetic field of the planet. And why it doesn't have one. So space and planetary scientist Rob Lillis wants to know why. His team is preparing to send a mission to Mars called MAVEN to investigate why Mars doesn't have the magnetic personality of its uh, planetary buddy, Earth. Okay, well, Mars does not have a magnetic field in the same way that the Earth does. Mars does not have what we scientists call a magnetohydrodynamic dynamo. That just means it doesn't have a large-scale global magnetic field generated by the motions of liquid iron in its core. Okay, but then the question is, did Mars ever have a magnetic field, and, and why does that matter? Okay, well, Mars definitely did have one of these large-scale global magnetic fields a long time ago. So how do we know that? Well, Mars may not have a global magnetic field, but Mars has some extremely magnetic crust. Certain regions of, of Mars have huge areas, hundreds of kilometers by hundreds of kilometers wide, and tens of kilometers thick, 
all magnetized in the same direction. And so this, this actually causes some pretty strong magnetic fields. The NASA mantra is follow the water. Evidence seems to be in that Mars was once a wet world, but it isn't any longer. And I understand that the fact that it's no longer wet, it is now dry, and this mystery of what happened to its magnetic field may be intertwined. As you say, uh, we have lots and lots of evidence that Mars was indeed wet. Mars had large areas of of standing liquid water, lakes, rivers, possibly oceans. Now, for liquid water to be stable on the surface of a planet, you need a much thicker atmosphere than Mars currently possesses. If you were to pour out a glass of water on the surface of Mars right now, it would evaporate almost instantly. In fact, it would actually boil because the pressure is so low, there just isn't enough atmosphere to keep it stable like there is here on Earth. So the question is, why did Mars lose its atmosphere and where did it go? This is where the magnetic field comes in. So. When you have a global magnetic field, it acts as a shield between the particles, the charged particles of the solar wind and the planet's atmosphere. So if you have a magnetic field, that's a protective bubble in which the atmosphere can live. If you get rid of that magnetic field, now there are many other ways for the solar wind to erode and to strip away the upper atmosphere and ultimately if you have enough time, large amounts of the atmosphere, it, uh, we estimate that Mars may have lost 95% of its original atmosphere. Uh, the presence or absence after a certain time of the magnetic field may, may have hastened that. But then isn't the big question is, what happened to the magnetic field? And how does a planet's magnetic field just go away? Well, the most important quantity for whether or not a planet has a magnetic field is whether the liquid iron in its outer core can churn fast enough, can sort of turn over fast enough. We use the word convection to describe the sort of churning motion. Now, the churning motion has to have a source of energy for it. On the Earth, it's the fact that we have an inner core and an outer core, and the outer core is slowly shrinking as the liquid closest to the inner core turns into a solid. When it turns into a solid, that releases heat. That heat keeps the outer core of, of, of the Earth churning fast enough to keep our magnetic field going. That heat also has to have somewhere to go. Now on Earth, we have plate tectonics, which is what causes earthquakes and volcanoes. Plate tectonics allow hot stuff to come up and cold stuff to go down, meaning plate tectonics on Earth allows our core a way to lose its heat more easily. Mars does not have plate tectonics. Mars has a single, what's called a stagnant lid. And so Mars does not have an easy way to lose heat from its core. So Mars's core, because of that, cannot churn sufficiently fast enough to create a magnetic field. Mars right now does have water there in the form of ice, but with the absence of flowing liquid water on Mars and the absence of an atmosphere and the absence of a magnetic field, what does that suggest about the presence of life on the planet, whether or not there's life, even microbial life on the planet today, or if there ever was life? Well, there could be life on the planet today. You know, pretty much anywhere north of, I believe, about 35 degrees north and south latitude, there are huge amounts of ice trapped right under the surface. So there's, there's a very large reservoir of water on Mars. It's just that it's currently mostly in a solid form. However, there's plenty of evidence that there are places on Mars where when just the right uh, solar conditions occur, that, that it can actually go just above the freezing temperature of water, and you can actually get small amounts of sort of seeping liquid water. These are, these are the so-called gullies. Now, the reason this is important for the life question is because you don't have to go terribly far underground to find places 
where episodically you can still have liquid water on Mars. What's also important about being underground is that you are protected from the radiation on the, on the surface of Mars. So there could be areas of Mars where you just go a few meters down and you could, in theory, have all the ingredients necessary to sustain simple microbial life. This would be subterranean life if there is life on Mars, and it can exist underground, protected from radiation, mm -hmm. with water, and it doesn't need the planet to have a magnetic field, at least the kind of life that we're talking about. That's right. And, and in fact, on Earth, it's not the magnetic field per se that protects us from the radiation. It's the atmosphere protects us from the radiation. The magnetic field protects the atmosphere. On Mars, you have neither a very thick atmosphere nor a magnetic field, but it's the lack of atmosphere, or the very thin atmosphere, I should say, that results in a very harsh surface radiation environment. Many of the questions surrounding where the atmosphere of Mars has gone and the processes by which the atmosphere has disappeared will be answered by the upcoming MAVEN mission, that's M-A-V-E-N. That, that stands for Mars Atmosphere Volatile Evolution Mission, launching in November 2013. Rob, thank you very much. No worries. Thanks a million. Robert Lillis is a space and planetary scientist at the Space Sciences Laboratory at the University of California in Berkeley. Well, Rob Sawyer, from a science fiction point of view, would you say that Mars is kind of passe these days? I mean, now that we know it doesn't quite look as attractive to life as we thought it did 50 or maybe even 80 years ago? Yeah, this is the thing. Of course, when we finally got there with Mariner in the 60s and Viking in the 70s, and we discovered what we had not anticipated, a planet pelted, covered with craters, a planet that looked dead and ancient, an ancient surface instead of a tectonically or geologically active surface, suddenly we all kind of moved away from that. My, my great friend Kim Stanley Robinson went and ran with that and wrote a trilogy, Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars, about the terraforming of Mars, taking as two assumptions, one, that it was a wasteland, and two, that it was sterile, that there was no life there. What we found in the last couple of years, though, is a little bit of a resurgence, and there are more and more people starting to think that maybe there, if there isn't extant life on Mars, we may at least find fossil evidence of life, and maybe even there is possibilities. We keep finding intriguing signs of water on Mars, recent erosional activity on the surface of Mars that is getting my colleagues and myself very excited again. Okay, Rob, hold on. We'll come back to you as we move a little farther out. Next stop, past the asteroid belt, about 800 million miles to the gas giant Jupiter, big enough to hold a thousand Earths. Jupiter weighs as much as all the other planets put together. And do you know what that is? Uh, not off the top of my head, but it's a lot. <laughs> it's, what would the formula be, just if you had to write it as an equation? Well, just take four-thirds pi r cubed for, uh, you know, uh, something the size of Jupiter and multiply it by one gram per cc and you get in the ballpark anyhow. Is that true or are you spitting out numbers? I'm telling you the truth. Okay. Tammy tells you true. All right, Rob. <laughs> now, there have been science fiction stories made about this place. 
seems sort of unappealing, covered with methane and ammonia and so forth. So what is it that drew science fiction to Jupiter? Well, Jupiter, of course, is the king of the planets. It's the largest of the eight planets in our solar system. It's almost a failed star, gigantic ball of gas. And the gases it's made of, methane, ammonia, and so forth, are the primordial gases that Earth's original atmosphere was made of. So that's very appealing. There's complex chemistry going on in the atmosphere. And everybody who, you know, the very first science fiction work was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. How was matter reanimated in Frankenstein? Electricity, lightning bolts. Well, the atmosphere of Jupiter is very electrically active. So you've got this primordial soup. You've got electricity constantly being pumped into it. You've got something that's almost a star in its own right. It begs the question of whether or not perhaps complex organic life chemistry ever arose in its atmosphere. And uh, Arthur C. Clarke, Sir Arthur C. Clarke, my all-time favorite science fiction writer, explored this in 1971 in a wonderful novella called A Meeting with Medusa. Medusa, of course, being another name for the jellyfish. And he proposed that mile in diameter, jellyfish-like creatures float in this methane atmosphere of Jupiter, and that perhaps they might be extant till this present day. Carl Sagan, the great astronomer, picked up on this very concept and actually adopted it and used it in one of the episodes of his later uh, science series, Cosmos, on PBS. So this, this was really taken quite seriously for a time. We haven't been to Jupiter yet. We don't know for sure. Uh, but it's a very intriguing notion that this primordial soup and these electric sparks might, in fact, give rise to life. Thanks, Rob. While science fiction writers like to imagine jellyfish floating around this supersized planet, it's what's orbiting it that intrigues scientists. Jupiter has more than five dozen moons. And we'll find out what that means for water and for life in a moment. Is the universe rife with life? It's big picture science. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed, from AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories. It helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Big Picture Science as we take a science fiction and a science faction tour of our solar system. Well, as faction as we can be, given what we know about water in the universe and the tendency of life to favor watery environments. We're now at the gas giant Jupiter, and it's more than 60 known moons. Europa is the second moon out and the solar system's biggest ice ball. From first appearances, it's an even less inviting landscape for life than the deserts of Mars. Grooves, cracks everywhere, white ice. What we know of it is largely from the Galileo spacecraft, which arrived in the Jovian system in 1995. And the big question is whether this creamy white moon might host life. And for that, life needs energy of some kind. It needs food, and it also needs some kind of energy to be able to help it eat that food, usually in the form of warmth or heat. And so you're right. We need to have an environment that has food available and is also not necessarily terribly cold. 
However, we found more and more bacteria on the surface of the earth called extremophiles that can live in environments that we didn't actually think were livable. So at very low temperatures. Or for example, there are also bacteria that live at volcanic vents on the bottom of the seafloor called black smokers. And these bacteria take advantage of the fact that hot gas is bubbling through the vents, warming the water. And so it's possible that since Europa has a rocky core, it could have black smokers like we have on Earth, and that could be one example of a habitable environment. Now, trying to find something like that would be very difficult. Yeah, because uh, our, our robot probe, I mean, it isn't enough just to drop the video camera down through the ice and look around. I mean, you have to drop it all the way to the bottom, find a black smoker if there are such things, and then look, I suppose, with a microscope? How complex could this life be given the the lack of a lot of good restaurants on Europa. Exactly. We're really speculating when we get down into the deep surface of Europa. We, I used to joke in graduate school that the ocean is large enough to have squid with eyes the size of dinner plates. And there's actually been a lot of popular science fiction about Europa. Even one book that I, I read recently about that had squids in the oceans of Europa. And so if you use your imagination, it could be a very interesting environment where life could live could either be at the black smokers at the bottom surface or if there is a current exchange of the surface with liquid close to the surface, that could be a way to get nutrients to get food down to the near surface. So it could be that that could also be a habitable environment. If you get far enough below the surface, you aren't going to be damaged by the radiation. It will be very cold. So you have to be able to survive at cold temperatures. But that radiation that is killing everything on the surface actually causes chemical reactions to occur that build simple organics that are really great for food, for just for bacteria. So are you talking about life that actually ekes out its existence in the icy shell of Europa? Or are you talking about the remains of life that was actually down in the ocean of Europa and somehow worked its way up through the ice. That's correct. We could try to find some kind of bacterial fossils by either looking for traces of the bacteria themselves, some kind of microscopes where you could see the actual structures, or a lot of people try to look for chemical materials that are called biomarkers, where they see chemical reactions that are caused by bacteria. Now, of course, trying to separate that out from just a normal chemical reaction can be very difficult. But, but how do these bacteria, even the dead ones, I mean, how do they work their way up through the ice? That sounds like the ice is sort of churning around. Yes, and that's what we've seen on the surface. The surface of Europa is actually very young. We can tell that because most of the icy moons in the outer solar system are covered by these large impact craters, but Europa only has a couple on the surface. That means that the surface is regularly getting turned over, and there are a lot of cracks on the surface that we see, and these cracks look like they open up and close on a regular basis. So things down under the ice might get to within striking distance of some probe that would land on the surface? We don't have any probes going to Europa to do these kinds of exploration today. When are we, and what kind of probe is it likely to be? Any idea? Sadly, no, we don't have any current missions to Europa. There was an orbiter in the works for a while, 
but it would be the third generation that would be possibly something that would dig through the surface and swim around in in the ocean, which would be very exciting. Well, finally, Rachel, there are people who say, look, uh, forget about going to Mars. Everybody looks for life on Mars. Let's go to Europa. There's a greater chance that uh, we might find it on Europa. Any advantage to finding Europans as opposed to Martians? Yes, we're looking for life that's living in an ocean environment. And there's very little evidence that we would be connected in some way to life there. And so it could have followed a completely different evolutionary path, especially because the starting materials that Jupiter and all of the satellites have started with are slightly different than the starting materials that Earth started with. But actually, what I think would be the most interesting thing is that part of looking for life in the solar system has been the follow the water model. And on the surface of Mars, the chance of there being liquid water and life living there right now is relatively small. Usually they're looking for extinct life on Mars. If life has ever been on Europa with a liquid ocean, it's probably still there and still alive. So I don't want to take part in the whole it, we have to go Europa first or Mars first or anything like that. But if we wanted to look for existing life, I'd say to go for the liquid water ocean. Rachel Mastrapa, thank you so much for uh, talking with me today. Thank you. Rachel Mastrapa is a planetary scientist for NASA and the SETI Institute. And Europa now seems to be an even more promising locale to look for life after the success of Russian scientists in the delicate drilling into the ancient lake that lies under the East Antarctic ice sheet called Lake Vostok. Conditions at the bottom of this lake might be an analog for Europa. I have to say that that drilling project was actually very controversial. That's right. It was very controversial because there was the possibility of contamination into this lake, which had been isolated from the biosystem for, what, 20 million years. Something like that. Well, Rob, we'll return to you for the science fiction perspective. Europa, strong favorite with scientists in their hunt for life beyond Earth. But I believe it was also a favorite with Arthur C. Clarke, the author of 2001. And in 2010... That's the sequel to 2001 A Space Odyssey. 2010, it was a movie, uh, and originally it was a novel by Clark before that. He was speculating that there might be life on Europa or that Europa had the conditions conducive to life. We've thought for some time that there might be a subsurface ocean or an ocean with a frozen surface on it on Europa. So we're talking about aquatic life and of course life on Earth when it did begin over four billion years ago began in the seas. Uh, in 2010 the, the thing that happens of course is that Jupiter, I mentioned when we were talking about the planet itself being a failed star or a, or a, a, a star that didn't quite make it, he he contrives a circumstance where it does ignite into nuclear fusion. It becomes a star, warms up Europa, and Europa starts developing its own ecosystem. And alien custodians remind us, all these worlds are yours except Europa. Attempt no landing there. Which, of course, is the springboard for the sequel, where naturally humans, who can't leave well enough alone, attempt a landing on Europa. Would you say that this was a good example in which science fiction had presaged developments in science, that Arthur C. Clarke was the first one to suggest that Europa might be inhabited. And today I can find people in the hallways of the SETI Institute who, if they had to bet, would say that Europa's a better bet than Mars for life. Yes, absolutely. I think science fiction serves this purpose very well. Uh, it's 
you know, there was a time where even that phrase astrobiology, or if you said around NASA or JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, that you wanted to go to Mars to look for life, that was tenure ending. It was what would keep you from getting your, uh, your research grant. The science fiction writer is not constrained. He or she can speak up quite loudly and say, this is what really interests us. And we get the ideas out there. I like to call science fiction the WikiLeaks of science. We get the notion out there, we get the public to start to accept it, and even the staid NASA administrators or the National Science Foundation eventually comes on board and then lets the scientists do the things that we in science fiction have paved the way for. Thanks, Rob. We'll hear more from you as we continue our solar system tour. Adios, Europa and Jupiter, because we're off to the ringed planet Saturn. Now, if you think living in a dark underground ocean is odd, imagine living in an ocean of natural gas. We'll just swing around Saturn here and park near its biggest, baddest moon. Which is named Titan, and that's because it was once thought to be the largest moon in the solar system, however... However, it isn't. Ganymede is just a little bit bigger. But Titan has something that Ganymede doesn't have, namely an atmosphere. It's got a blanket of air that's even thicker than Earth's atmosphere. Much of what we learned about Titan's atmosphere was from the Cassini mission and from the Huygens probe, which was sent plummeting to its surface. And while that surface doesn't have liquid water, because it's too cold for that, it has a lot of ethane and methane. And the difference between ethane and methane? Well, just one carbon atom, actually. Ethane has two carbon atoms, and methane only has one. Okay, so it's all about carbon atoms. And the moon has hydrocarbon lakes, notes planetary scientist Alex Hayes, whose name is, after all, rather apt for studying this moon. Alex, methane has replaced water in Titan's atmosphere. So does that mean that there could be oceans of methane on Titan? It actually was thought at one time that Titan had a global ocean of liquid methane and ethane. And that's because the early spacecraft observations of Titan, the Voyager and Pioneer spacecrafts, could not penetrate through its thick atmosphere. It could only see that it had uh, a thick atmosphere that was highly scattering. You so, mean it was smoggy? Yes, it was. Uh, Titan has a haze layer that's highly scattering, and so you can't actually see to its surface easily at visible and infrared wavelengths. Okay, so they didn't know what was under the cloud bank, if you will, under the, all that smog, and they figured there might be this ocean of liquid methane and ethane, whatever. Exactly, and there's a good reason why, because methane is actually destroyed in the upper parts of Titan's atmosphere by high-energy particles from the sun in a process called photolysis. In 26 million years, all that methane in the atmosphere would have been destroyed. When it's destroyed, it makes other particles, including ethane, which happens to be a liquid on Titan's temperature and pressure as well, and so people thought that there'd be this global ocean of methane in which to replenish the atmosphere as you lose your methane, and also ethane produced over geologic time from the destruction of the methane. Okay, so the, the point about the 26 million years is only that that's really short compared to the history of Titan. So it's had plenty of time to establish this situation of a liquid ocean consisting of methane and ethane. Exactly. Although we did not find a liquid ocean of methane and ethane, part of the Cassini mission to Saturn, which is the current flagship mission from NASA that's in Saturn's system studying Titan, was a Huygens probe which actually landed on the surface of Titan. And that probe was made to either float in a liquid or land on a solid surface. Well, what happened? That probe went down to the surface. It made it. It actually sent some pictures back. It did. did. It landed near the equator and it observed a solid surface with rounded particles that looked like they may have been worked in some kind of river-type system. And we believe those particles were tens of centimeters in size and made up of water ice. Okay, so the surface of Titan, or at least the part where the Huygens probe landed, 
wasn't an ocean. Now, maybe it just missed. Maybe it landed on the beach. Presumably, it made photos on its way down to the surface. It did, but only of the small area where it landed. But we do have about 45% or half of the satellite mapped from orbit now, and it showed us that the liquid is restricted to the polar regions. There's no large bodies of liquids found in the equator, but there are, in fact, large bodies of liquid that are similar in size to the Great Lakes found in the polar regions. Well, well I want to hear more about these lakes. It sounds like Minnesota, uh, except colder, if that's possible. These are big lakes. You said is comparable in size to, uh, you know, Lake Erie or Lake Superior or something like that. Right. There's a distribution of sizes. The largest ones are approaching the size of Earth Great Lakes, and the smallest ones are all the way down to the limit of the resolution we can see of something like a kilometer squared. My goodness. Okay, that's kind of like a pond. So you got these lakes, but of course they're not filled with water. I, well, what would be the surface temperature on Titan? I mean, could they be water? No. So the surface temperature on Titan is about minus 289 degrees Fahrenheit. And the actual surface itself, what we would consider to be the rock on Earth, is actually water ice. So ice makes up the bedrock of Titan. Do these lakes evaporate? And do, does it rain back into them? I mean, you know, what's the cycle there? What, what happens? Yes, the, the methane acts similar to water does on Earth. And we've seen evidence for evaporation uh, happening, or at least lakes disappearing in the south. We've seen clouds go by near the equator, followed by large-scale darkenings of the surface that people have interpreted as equatorial rainstorms. Gosh, so this is the only other place in the solar system I can think of where you actually have a weather pattern that is kind of analogous to what we have here on Earth, except substitute natural gas for water. <laughs> exactly, and even it transcends above just talking about lakes and rain. In the equatorial regions of Titan, we have these vast fields of dunes that are similar in size to the largest dune fields like the Namib or Simpson Deserts here on Earth. And these dunes, unlike uh, Earth where they're made up of, of silicate sand, are actually made of hydrocarbon particles. So you can think of little plastic particles that make up big dunes that are 100 meters high and tens of kilometers long and spaced by multiple kilometers as well. It sounds like Titan was invented by a sci-fi author, if you ask me. Okay, well, the big question, Alex, ethane, methane, they got a lot of carbon in them. I mean, they're just molecules that have carbon in them. There's carbon chemistry on Titan. Uh, could it have cooked up something that's alive? So people have speculated about whether or not you can have energetic reactions to create life on Titan. But there are a lot of problems with that, and uh, that's kind of an active field of research. In order to really go down that road, we have to know exactly what the surface is made of and exactly what the composition of these liquids are so they know what compounds we have to work with. Future missions may give us that information, but so far people have talked about organic-based life or hydrocarbon-based life on chitin, although there's obviously no evidence for it. One problem, based on my remembrance, faint though it is, of high school chemistry, is that as the temperature goes down, the, the reaction rates go down. In other words, you know, not much happens very quickly. So even though Titan is more than 4 billion years old, would there have been enough time to start up life? Well, there are multiple problems with life on Titan. Uh, you mentioned that it's very cold there, so you have very little energy to work with. There's also no oxygen, which is the primary reactant that we have here on Earth, although people have postulated that you can do some reactions with hydrogen. What's the future for research on Titan? I mean, it sounds so fascinating. I mean, I, I think I would want to go. I'd have to take my furry mucklucks and electric socks, but I would want to go. Is anything going to go to Titan in the near future? Well, I certainly hope so. The Cassini spacecraft, which is in orbit around Saturn now, is going to continue to operate till 2017. So we're going to have another five years of data from that spacecraft. And right now, uh, there's a mission called the Titan Mare Explorer which is a small mission that's in competition with two other potential missions to launch in the 2016 to 2018 timeframe. And the Titan Mare Explorer is a mission to send a boat to Legia Mare, one of the seas in Titan's North Polar region. 
And that's real exploration if you have a boat, isn't it? I mean, would this boat trawl the uh, lake and, you know, look at whatever liquids are in that lake under a microscope? Well, there's no propulsion on this boat. It would primarily drift around the lake on the currents and due to wind. But it would actually have a camera on board, a meteorological package to measure things like wind speed and uh, other properties of the atmosphere, and also primarily look at both the depth of the lake and the composition of the liquid. Would it be able to detect microscopic life if there was any in the lakes of Titan? No, it would not be able to detect microscopic life, but it would tell us the composition of the lake, and that would tell us what compounds that life potentially would have to work with and be one step closer to understanding what potential reactions can exist. Alex Hayes, thanks so much for uh, talking with me today. Thank you very much as well. Alex Hayes is a planetary scientist at the University of California at Berkeley. We'll hear writer Rob Sawyer's take on this foggy moon in a moment. Is it rife with life in fiction? It's Big Picture Science. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. That is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Welcome back to Big Picture Science, our current stop on our solar system tour, the hazy moon Titan. Well, Rob, here's a destination that's uh, uh, not just borderline exotic. It's on the other side of the border, and that's Titan, Saturn's largest moon. In fact, from its name, you'd think it might be the largest moon in the solar system, and I believe at one point it was considered to be so. But uh, its size was misjudged because it's covered with a thick atmosphere, and that's always appealing for people looking for worlds to populate with fictional beings. Any, uh, any science fiction about Titan? Absolutely. In fact, the reason I'm a science fiction writer today is because the very first science fiction novel I ever read, came out in 1954, was a book called Trouble on Titan. And it was a young adult novel by a wonderful writer named Alan E. Nurse, N-O-U-R-S-E, but pronounced Nurse, about uh, a human colony on Titan. And even back then, there was this notion that Titan had an atmosphere of hydrocarbons. And of course, hydrocarbons can be used as fuel. So he had his hero jetting around in a little air-breathing jet while breathing this hydrocarbon soup on Titan, endless fuel supplies for traveling in the atmosphere of Titan. And I was just captured by this alien world that, you know, I'd barely even heard of as a kid. You know, you, you learn the planets in public school. You don't learn the names of the moons, except our own moon, which doesn't have a name. <laughs> so Titan was very appealing to me. And then a, a lot of people will know uh, Robert A. Heinlein, as uh, he's called the Dean of American Science Fiction. And one of his novels was uh, The Puppet Masters. I think that's 1958. The Puppet Masters had an alien invasion of Earth from within our solar system by slug-like beings and their home planet, or planet, I use that word metaphorically because it wasn't a planet, their home world 
was Titan, this large Saturnian moon. And again, it's this notion that hydrocarbons, hydrogen, carbon, uh, the chemicals of life are there in profusion. We know for a fact they're there in profusion. And it, unlike Jupiter, which gives out enormous amounts of radiation and might in fact sterilize its moons, Saturn's moons are a little less bathed in that kind of uh, hard radiation and might in fact be much more congenial to life. Titan is an excellent place for NASA and for other international space agencies to concentrate its effort. Science fiction author Robert Sawyer is more optimistic about finding life on Titan than perhaps the scientists are, but then science fiction has led the way before. Rob will stay with us and will continue to give us the sci-fi perspective of life on worlds that we're now exploring for real. Our next stop is also in the Saturnian system. That's right, the ring planet, one billion miles from the sun. And by the way, you can take off those Foster grants because sunlight out here is 100 times weaker than on Earth. Enceladus, as it says in the guidebook, is a moon of Saturn. Seems to be a smaller, less interesting version of Europa, Jupiter's moon. And it's colder, too, being farther from the sun. It looks like another random moon, except that the Cassini spacecraft, which has been making photos out here for years, found geysers shooting out from the surface of Enceladus. Geysers. Sort of like the kind you find in Yellowstone Park. And like those, mostly water vapor. But what's causing them? I mean, what's the source of the water? And what does that mean for the possibility of life existing on this moon? Planetary geologist Cynthia Phillips says that she and other researchers were in for a surprise when the Cassini spacecraft first returned its images of Enceladus. The surface is definitely not an old, cratered, boring-looking place um, like Earth's moon or like a lot of Saturn's other moons. The surface definitely looked a lot more like, say, Jupiter's moon Europa, and we know that Europa is very interesting as well. Okay. I've heard the term tiger stripes applied to uh, Enceladus, and I assume that this is not merely detailing to give it that racy look. <laughs> what are the tiger stripes? The tiger stripes are a series of, well, stripes. They're a series of these kind of very distinct-looking cracks that are near the south pole of Enceladus. And so we saw these strange features, and one thing that was odd about them is that they were a lot warmer than you'd expect the rest of the surface to be. So you'd think that you know you have a cold, icy body. It's way out, far away from the sun. It's going to be really cold. But these stripes, we measured them with a, a special instrument I could see that can measure the temperature of the surface. And these, these tiger stripes were a lot warmer than the rest of the surface of Enceladus. And that was merely the beginning of the surprises revealed by the Cassini spacecraft. That's right. And so people were starting to really scrutinize Enceladus. It seemed like just it was a very strange place. And then suddenly we saw an amazing image, which was actually a plume. We saw material actually being spewed off of the surface of Enceladus. And remember, Enceladus is this little tiny moon. It's a lot smaller than, say, Earth's moon. It's this little moon, and there had this giant plume of stuff coming off it. So let me get the picture here. If we were to fly by Enceladus, as NASA's Cassini spacecraft did, and made pictures of Enceladus coming from the southern hemisphere of this tiny little moon where these stripes are, we would see these plumes, sort of like, um, I don't know, Old Faithful at Yellowstone, except uh, given the low gravity on a small moon, I suppose they go up much higher, and also there's no atmosphere to stop them. So these plumes are extending uh, far out into space. You can actually see them in the photos. That's correct. You can see these amazing images with these giant plumes of stuff venting off of the South Pole. And so that's where the, the interesting bit about the tiger stripes comes back in, is that these 
features, remember they're a lot warmer than the rest of the surface of Enceladus. If you trace back exactly where the plumes are coming from, the plumes are coming from these tiger stripes. So we have a place on the surface that's a lot warmer than the rest of the surface, and we have plumes of material being ejected. So what that tells us is that these cracks have got to be associated with some sort of internal activity. There's got to be heating. There's got to be something going on that's bringing warm, um, probably liquid material pretty close to the surface. Then the surface maybe cracks open, and you have this plume that just vents into space. And what's really cool is, yeah, it's like you said, is how big these things are. These plumes, if you look at the pictures, they're almost the size of Enceladus. So they go way out into space, and they might be water ice. I mean, is, is that what they are? They're not, you know, volcanic ash or the usual things that come out of a volcano. And that's right. They're basically predominantly water ice. So the Cassini spacecraft has actually flown through one of these plumes, because remember, they're really big. So it's not like you have to skim right over the surface of Enceladus to get into one. And there's instruments on the Cassini spacecraft that actually measured the composition of what was in this plume. And they found that, yeah, mostly water ice, or mostly water in, in some form. They also found salt. And so what that tells us is that maybe there's some kind of subsurface layer on Enceladus that has salty water, kind of like an ocean. So there's some liquid water, presumably under the surface of Enceladus, and whatever you say liquid water, to an astrobiologist, or for that matter, to just about anybody else that I encounter, they're going to say, well, could there be some life there? I mean, underneath the, the white, hard, icy surface of this tiny moon around Saturn, could there be life? Well, you know, that's not a crazy possibility. What's interesting about Enceladus is that it's spewing off these vents of material that's mostly water with some salt and some other materials. Remember, Enceladus is orbiting Saturn inside this E-ring. This ring is actually created by Enceladus. It's the debris that's left from all these plumes. What we know from the fact that there's this nice ring there is that this venting has been going on for quite a while. Of course, we can't tell from that whether this venting has been going on for the last millions of years. We have no idea. And in fact, we think that this ring probably isn't stable because if you look at how much material is being thrown out of Enceladus currently, if this had been going on for millions of years, Enceladus would be gone. It would have vented all its material. It'd be, you know, it would just be a ring. There wouldn't be a moon there anymore. So if you're thinking about life on Enceladus, life as we know it, of course, we think requires kind of a nice, stable, benign environment. And so at least in my opinion, I think that Enceladus, it's a pretty crazy place. It's pretty exciting to think about. But we're not talking about kind of a nice, stable, warm ocean that's been there for the last billion years. You know, so I think life isn't totally out of the question, but I think it's less of a possibility than a place like Europa where we think Europa has this nice subsurface ocean layer, and we think that that ocean's been there for four billion years as far as we can tell. That's a much better place for life to develop. Are there any plans to somehow look for Enceladans? If, if that's Enceladans, that sounds like something you get as a side dish at a restaurant. Uh, is there some way to do that? Could you look for organic material in these plumes somehow, or would that require a whole new mission to, to, to the Saturn system? Well, it would. The Cassini spacecraft was never designed to look for life on Enceladus because we had no clue there were even plumes on Enceladus. So this has really just been a bonus, amazing discovery. But to really look for life on Enceladus, we do have a real advantage, which is that this material, these plumes, are venting 
samples of the interior right onto space. They're throwing them right into space where a spacecraft could grab them. We don't even have to necessarily land on the surface of Enceladus to study what's under the surface. So there's been some missions proposed to basically go back to the Saturn system to really fly through this plume a whole bunch of times and capture as much material as you can. Then, of course, you'd have to get that material back to Earth somehow. So this is a pretty difficult mission. It's pretty far off in the future. But I think that we haven't seen the last of Enceladus. I think there is going to be another mission. And I think that Enceladus is going to be a really interesting target. Cynthia Phillips, thanks so much for talking to me about Enceladus. Thank you, Seth. Cynthia Phillips is a planetary geologist at the SETI Institute. So, Robert Sawyer, how about this moon of Saturn, Enceladus? Has it ever been the target for the active imagination of sci-fi authors? You know, I went looking to try and answer that question, and I could not find anything of substance. Of course, it's been mentioned in passing, you know, take a left turn at Enceladus when you're on the way to Uranus or something like that. But in terms of finding stories that actually dealt with it, and particularly dealt with it in the uh, the brief that we're talking about here, which is as an abode of life, it's a place where my colleagues and myself have some work to do. we got to get cracking because it's a fascinating, fascinating world. And, you know, there are those in the astrobiology community who are now saying that it, not Europa, not Titan, and not Mars, is the most likely place to find another ecosystem within our solar system. That would be ironic, wouldn't it? The, the, the one world of the solar system where we might first find life hasn't been treated by the sci-fi authors. I, I don't know. Uh, if... Is that going to sit well with you? Oh, it's just job security. It means that we have more places to explore. You know, the thing that keeps getting thrown at us is, well, what's left for you guys to talk about? And the answer is every week there's new stuff for us to talk about because new vistas of science open up to us. Well, Rob, turning inward to the center of our solar system, just briefly, uh, we come to the sun. Now, uh, as a kid, I never thought that the sun would appeal to science fiction writers as a possible abode of life. Uh, when I got older, I learned that uh, William Herschel, in fact, uh, the famous astronomer, thought that there might be sort of a, a subsurface environment there on the sun where you could have living beings. Uh, but uh, has the sun actually ever figured in science fiction? Yes, my friend David Brin, B-R-I-N, his very first novel came out in 1980, was called Sun Diver. That's one word. I'm saying it is two so people all hear it, Sun Diver. And it's about exactly that, a spaceship that dives in to the vast ball of uh, hydrogen that is the sun. The sun, of course, is hydrogen gas. It's also a lot of electrical activity. And it finds, or his characters find within the sun, ring-shaped things that he calls toroids and various things that are behaving kind of like cattle or swine forms of fish in the actual material of the sun, in what's called the chromosphere, which is the the second of three uh, major visible layers of the sun. And wonderfully huge, big idea. I think it's the least likely of the places in our solar system to find life. But it goes back the farthest in a way because the sun was one of the very first things that the ancients imbued with godlike quality 
every early religion had some sort of personification of the sun. So the notion that maybe there are personifications, people or entities existing within that superheated plasma that is the sun, I think is is going right back to the, the dawn of human thought about this and brings it nicely full circle. I think it would make the ancient Egyptians happy. Well, finally, Rob, your favorite destination for uh, for writing about life in the solar system. What, what, what's your favorite world these days? I still come back to Mars. I think Mars is going to enjoy a renaissance. Uh, there's no doubt about it that it's where, you know, if NASA wants to get public support, they've got to say, that's what we're going to do next. Not back to the moon, not low Earth orbit, getting on to Mars. There's a, a desire on the part of the whole human race to see what's there with our own eyes. We were captivated by what the little robot rovers showed us. Rob Sawyer, thank you so much for talking with me. My pleasure, Seth. Thank you. Thanks to science fiction author Robert Sawyer for accompanying us on our solar system search for life. We've followed the water, but we've also considered the possibility of life in lakes of liquid ethane and methane. And as we've heard, science fiction writers are a step ahead of us in imagining how the universe might be rife with life. Who knows? Maybe the sun will turn out to be the hot spot for life. I wonder if they're human beams. No, never mind. <laughs> okay. If you want to peruse the title of books that Robert has mentioned in this program, you'll find them on our website, bigpicturescience.org. And scientists are checking out these locales with rovers on and orbiters around Mars, Jupiter's and Saturn's moons, Europa, Titan, and Enceladus. We've also considered the sun, but actually that's not a bright spot in our search for possible life. Thanks to our other worldly production staff, they're all stars. Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Jay Weiler, and Marissa Fessenden. Also support from Rena Sholsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Rife with Life. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program? You can leave your comments there as well. If you're a podcast listener but prefer over-the-air radio because of something in your youth, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.